This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. Today, I've got Dr. Doug Weaver back with us, and we're going to be discussing Baptist and the Azusa Street Revival. It's going to be an exciting program. Before I introduce uh, Dr. Weaver, you might know I am sitting not in my studio. I'm actually in Michael Roundtree's studio here in Oklahoma. We're about to travel up to Kansas City for a conference, and uh, I drove out here to do the program, and he's in a staff meeting, so it just kind of worked out. So uh, we've got an exciting program for you today. I want to remind you to subscribe, like the video, and if you've been blessed by this content or other content we have produced, consider donating uh, at the links in the description of this video. You can give a one-time gift on PayPal of any amount that you'd like, or you can be a reoccurring giver there on Patreon as well as five bucks a month to get access to extra content kind of like the content that we're about to go film in Kansas City. You're going to get a bunch of stuff from Mike Bickle. I think we're going to get an interview with Misty Edwards. We're going to get an interview, uh, hopefully, with Lou Engle and some of the others that are going to be there at The Send. So it's going to be an exciting program uh, that are coming up there. So you can check out some of that content on Patreon. Uh, Doug, before we dive into the subject of uh, Baptist uh, and the Azusa Street Revival and their kind of relationship to Pentecost, which you've cataloged in this book, which, by the way, is wonderful, quite a read, but wonderful book. Uh, tell us a little about yourself and your ministry before we dive into our subject matter today. Okay. I actually teach at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. I have been here 19 years. Um, I teach Baptist studies and Pentecostal studies in the Department of Religion. And for the last year, I found myself in the chair's office. So I'm technically the interim chair of the Department of Religion at Baylor. Um, Love being on your show the last time and looking forward to it again. I have uh, done a lot of interim pastorates in my day, but right now I'm just teaching Sunday school in a local Baptist church here in Waco. Well, uh, way overqualified for just doing uh, uh, Sunday school church in Waco. Let me let me ask you some questions. Why why are you interested in Baptists in their relationship to uh, Pentecost and their relationship to the Azusa Street Revival? I mean, you said it yourself, hey, I'm a member of a Baptist church. I teach here at Baylor. Uh, why exactly are you interested in Pentecostal studies? Yeah, yeah, I think uh, people who call themselves historians probably need to admit that some of the history they do is autobiographical. And I was in college in the uh, during the charismatic movement, and my roommate uh, became involved in the charismatic uh, renewal. And I think because of that, uh, began to to just analyze and you know on a personal level uh, think about religious experience. And he is now actually just retired as an Assemblies of God uh, pastor. And so it's probably that relationship. Uh, I will say one other thing, though. I I ended up doing uh, a doctoral dissertation way back in the 80s on a uh, divine healer named William Branham. Maybe you all have heard of him. And uh, I think some of that uh, study was also uh, not by, it it was indirectly biographical in that, I had developed some hearing issues and just began to study healing in the Christian faith. And uh, so, yeah, I am Baptist um, and have always taught at Baptist related institutions. But I have at Baylor uh, had several uh, students actually do PhDs with me and study Pentecostal studies. So, yeah, Baptist Pentecostal interactions. uh, I don't know how many people do it, but I'm I'm one of them. I, I, they've got to be few and far between. Uh, I haven't met too many of them, but today I'm really excited to talk about some of Well, I actually experience. might be the only one, John. You, you, but, might, you uh, might be the only one. <laughs> <laughs> Willfully admit, hey, when there's a unicorn in the meadow, you got to point them out so everybody can see. Let's talk about two of these uh, uh, men inside of uh, the, the Azusa Street Revival, uh, well-known Baptist, Joseph uh, uh, Smalley and 
Adolfos, Spalding, Orell. We'll talk about these two guys as the primary figures of our discussion today. But you said uh, in section two of your book uh, that was it 10 out of 40 of the Pentecostal leaders uh, survey done were in fact Baptist. How, how rich was the Baptist roots inside of early Pentecostalism? Yeah, one of the goals of the book was to show you how rich the connections uh, were and in a lot of ways still are. Um, I like to think of both groups as a part of uh, what we call restorationism, seeking to restore the New Testament. And, you know, Baptists do that by insisting on believers' baptism by immersion and maybe congregational church polity. Uh, but people who have studied early Pentecostalism certainly call it a restorationist movement to restore the gifts of the Spirit, uh, practices of the Spirit in Acts 2. Um, the interesting thing about Baptists, and I would throw this out for you, I, I do think that Baptists are, although the ones you know might not even admit this, but Baptists haven't been interested in doctrine, of course, but they are experiential people. They are interested in conversion and simply having an, an experience of God. And Pentecostals surely do that as well. Uh, and I, I like to think that the Baptists who were attracted to Pentecostalism wanted a more um, palpable, more visible uh, experience of God in their life. They wanted more power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so I don't really think it's a mistake that you have, uh, you know, one fifth to one fourth of the early leaders coming out of uh, Baptist churches. Now, a lot of those Baptists were Baptists who got interested in holiness uh, in the higher life or deeper life movement of that time. And then they became uh, Pentecostal. Uh, Joseph Smale uh, was from England who ends up in LA and many of the people, if you, if for all of your listeners, if you know the stories of Azusa Street, uh, for example, Jenny Moore, who ends up marrying William Seymour, uh, was the first person to speak in tongues at Smales Church in L.A. And a lot, there was a lot of interchange between people. Um, Smale, I, I, it, just a little bit about him. He came from England. He comes over to the United States. He pastors First Baptist Church uh, in L.A. And in 1905, there's conflict in his church. He begins to preach about the power of the Holy Spirit and people need a uh, experience of the Spirit. He had been to the Welsh revival. Perhaps y'all talked about that. Uh, and so when he comes back, uh, there's conflict in his church and some Baptists did not think that a separate, uh, did not think that a separate experience of the Spirit was uh, something that was needed. So he starts, and think of the name of the church here, um, New Testament Baptist Church, First New Testament Baptist Church. He's restoring, he's trying to restore the Bible. And there are people in his church that are some of the earliest people also down the road at Azusa Street. Uh, I think Smale would have been at Azusa Street, Josh, but he never experienced uh, speaking in tongues. Um, there has been a book written. Uh, I have a whole chapter about Smale. There's been a book written by Timothy Welch, uh, who is an English Baptist minister about Smale. And he calls, uh, he picks up, a, y'all know the name Frank Bartleman. Uh, Bartleman was a part of the Azusa Street story. Bartleman wrote one of the earliest uh, accounts of the Azusa Street. They called Smale the Moses uh, of early Pentecostalism. And I will say that's a pretty interesting uh, title. If you think about it, Moses gets to the edge of the promised land and doesn't go in. And <laughs> Smale never, never becomes a part of Azusa Street, but it's hard not to say that, well, people in his church are across this, you know, down the road. And so uh, he's pre-Pentecostal, he certainly contributes to Azusa Street. Um, I'll be happy to answer any questions about him. The other guy you might not have heard of, uh, there's not been a book written about him. I wish somebody call him A.S. Worrell, uh, so I don't have to say that Adolfo Spalding. <laughs> it sounds like an insult, you know, the, the yeah. name, Adolphus. Like, whoa, whoa, cool down. <laughs> You know, he's really, really fascinating, though. And what I did with him, I, there was had been an article written about him, but I got into some old Baptist newspapers and read some things about him that nobody had ever uh, printed. He was, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of this phrase, um, 
but he was a landmark Baptist. And a landmark Baptist, but landmarkism was, it's still around. I think if you're in Oklahoma now uh, doing this interview, there's landmark Baptist in Oklahoma and Arkansas and, and some in Texas. But he, the landmarkers said that they were the true church and nobody else was the true church. And the only kind of church was a local church. Uh, and they were very strong in the Southwest. They were very exclusive. They really argued with everybody else. Uh, they were combative. So he had a history of that in the Baptist story, but he got involved in the holiness movement. And he said that uh, when he was about 60, he had experience of the spirit. And, and so I do think this is a case of a Baptist who wanted a direct experience of God and really wasn't, wasn't finding enough uh, in his own Baptist setting. And so he really did begin to write articles and, and go to churches and preach uh, about holiness and here's the thing about Baptists, they would always preach conversion, and they still do. Uh, but that gave them an entry onto a revivalism circuit. And then while mm -hmm. they were on the circuit, they might talk about holiness. Um, and so, but he kept wanting more, Josh, he kept wanting more, uh, more power from the spirit. So if you know the language of Keswick holiness, Keswick holiness, K-E-S-W-I-C-K, uh, that might that that whole idea is that you get power from the holy spirit for witnessing power of the holy spirit to serve uh, a lot of people at the end of the 19th century wanted wanted uh thought that there would be this just ushering in of great power to convert everybody and then uh jesus would come back at the turn of the century y'all might remember that if you were around in 2000 people might have said the same thing well, 100 years ago in 1900, they did that. He And uh, Worrell was one of those. He thought there was going to be this great emphasis on power. And so when he heard about Azusa Street, his friends told him not to go. Uh, but he went and he comes back and he begins to write articles for Baptist and Pentecostal articles, and he began. And he is one of the earliest uh, eyewitnesses of Azusa Street. That's not a member of Azusa Street, and that's why he's worth reading. Uh, and here's what's fascinating about him: he he really wanted to speak in tongues. He said he went to Azusa Street to get better. This is the phrase he used: better equipment for service. Uh, and I have seen that language in other holiness literature. It's better equipment for service. What he meant by that was more power from the spirit. But he too ne never spoke in tongues. Uh, and what's, what you see about his eyewitness accounts, he liked William Seymour. He said that things that happened at Azusa were authentic. But, and I still think this was probably because he didn't experience it all himself. He said there were satanic um, counterfeiters at Azusa. And what he meant by that, that there were people that were faking the experience. Very Edward-esque. Uh, they yeah, they were fake. And this is, the, this is the interesting theology behind that. Um, what he said, and I've, I've seen other people say this as well, uh, but what he popularized was that there were, were authentic gifts, there were authentic tongue, uh, speaking in tongues, authentic prophecy. But he said that the devil loved to counterfeit that which people love the most. And the devil was so good at counterfeiting that it really looked real and really sounded real. But that, you know, the, the spirit-led Christian would have to be able to discern what was true or not. Um, and I do think people who were cessationist and did not like Azusa took arguments like Orel made and they used them themselves. And they went, well, that's why people, um, that's why people like this, because it looks okay, but it's really not. And so, you know, if you want to criticize something uh, in a Christian context, when you attach it to the devil, that's, that's a pretty, you're throwing somebody under the eternal bus. So Worrell's fascinating to me, Josh, because he, he is the reason why Baptists learned about Azusa. It was in, his articles were put in Baptist magazines at the time. Uh, but he's also the one of the reasons why other people uh, learned about Azusa because their uh, magazines like the Triumph of Faith they actually would include 
uh, him as well because he generally wrote positive articles. So uh, I do think that Smail and Worrell are two examples for you and your listeners of, of Baptists who were attracted to Azusa, but ultimately didn't land in Azusa because they did not experience tongues. But they both were very influential where they were. I mean, you, you really don't want to tell the Azusa story in L.A. without mentioning Joseph Smale. No, I really don't think I really don't think you can do that. And there's too much interaction between congregations. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that's that's an introduction to both of those uh, guys. I, I yeah, really enjoy some... really enjoy talking about those two. Yeah, let's talk about some specifics surrounding these guys. Let's Joseph Smale. Uh, his education was he was he trained under um, uh, why can't I think of his name? Uh, yeah, uh, Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon. I was like the cigar. I was like well, the, the guy, you know, the beard, the reformed guy. So he's That's trained him. at Spurgeon School. Um, yeah, you know, I had I had read we'd done a recent uh, an old I think it's like an eighteen ninety two uh, biography on Spurgeon, and specifically some of the stuff that they that was attributed to him in healing and seeing the sick get healed and recovered. And it seems as if there are people who think this guy was healing more people than doctors in in all of Europe and in America. Uh, Is it possible that Joseph was impacted by this healing ministry, but it did seem kind of under the radar as if it was something that wasn't trumpeted much. Do we know if Joseph was impacted by that at all? Um, That's actually one of the, the goals of the book by Tim Welch is to say that Spurgeon's uh, focus on healing and holiness impacted Smale. Uh, what what Welch doesn't do, Josh, he doesn't have what you might call smoking gun uh, quotations from Spurgeon, sure. but he has some really good material. And I, I do think it's accurate to say that while Smale was at Spurgeon's college, he was influenced in the direction of the holiness movement. I do think that's right. And as you know, it, it, well, in Baptist life, you if you became interested in holiness, you were probably interested in James 5 and anointing of oil and healing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, was an, there was an openness to healing, um, even in Baptist circles. Now, is that under the radar? Of course it is, because as a Baptist historian, we... I mean, I do think I'm the one that's done this. You don't have anybody writing about healing in Baptist history. You just don't have anybody doing it. Uh, and so, sure, some of that does come out of. And why I do not know why Smale left England and came to America. Um, he doesn't say that in any of his material, and Welch doesn't say it either. But, but you do have the extension. Uh, I also mentioned that, though. You, you, I think you want to mention Spurgeon. Uh, and I think you want to mention, though, the Welsh revival that that Smale was inspired by that, too. Well, that's that's really insightful. And someone had said, hey, my mic is too quiet. So if this is still not loud enough, let me know and I will continue to turn it up. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about his ecclesiology. You mentioned that his ecclesiology kind of got him in trouble uh, as he was restructuring. We want to be led by the spirit in our church. And though that's a good desire it does look a lot more like some of the charismatic spaces that we have now. We want to be led by the spirit, which often ends up being an individual who hears from God on behalf of the church and how that kind of got him in trouble. Uh, can you can you kind of speak into the church polity that was going on for Joseph Smale? Yeah, and this, uh, so it depends on what kind of polity you like is how you're going to interpret this. Mm-hmm. Um, this would have been a, a Baptist church with congregational polity where everybody technically gets a vote. Uh, but, you know, in congregational polity, uh, people who can persuade, you know, it's just like in politics, you can persuade somebody to vote for you. Um, but everybody's supposed to get a vote. And, and what he does, he comes back from the Welsh revival and says that God laid on his heart that the church needed to move in a new direction. And hmm. in congregational polity, You've got to convince people of that, and that's not always an easy thing to do. And so there was, you know, the thing about Baptist ecclesiology, Josh, is that it provides a whole lot of freedom, and it allows for a whole lot of mess. The thing about that, you don't have a bishop that will come in and maybe, uh, you know, manage or adjudicate uh, problems. It has to do with whether the 
the pastor uh, maybe cast a vision and whether the people go along with it. And so what happens in this church is very, very clear that some went with him and some didn't, and they have a split in uh, congregational. And look, I've, I've lived congregational polity my whole life, so I like it. But like I said, it has, it has its pros and cons. And um, he, to use language of today, the church would have taken a vote of confidence on him. What he does is, uh, basically said, I'm, I'm going to leave. And they, at first they kind of say, you don't have to, uh, but he does leave. Um, the one thing that you might've picked up in the book, which usually doesn't work well in congregational polity, because you normally in congregational polity need to have people at the bottom, you know, whether you want to call it a committee or small groups, good ideas need to bubble up and you need to have people to own it. And he, he said that God told him to get rid of the music minister and that the Holy Spirit would be the director of the music. In other words, he did what's called a top-down uh, decision-making process. Well, if you like that, great. But if you don't like it, you call that person an authoritarian dictator. And that is what <laughs> happened in his church. Uh, people said... You know, if, if we want to say it this way, he said the Holy Spirit told me to do it this. And somebody else said, well, I didn't hear the Holy Spirit say that. Yeah, he and had one of his, con- his big donors' daughters. Didn't mm-hmm. one of his, his, his big donors, like one of his daughters, came back and like gave a prophetic word against him? Is that, am I remembering yeah, that story and, right? And so that, what's happened there, exactly. He had a, um, oh, you're really getting into some good ecclesiology. Do people with money influence <laughs> other people? <laughs> And he had a doctor. Uh, and as you know, some people have always said that uh, Pentecostals didn't have people in those kind of professions. But obviously there was a medical doctor in his church. But the daughter had a prophetic word against him. And it looks like, it looks like to me, Josh, that she was, while Smale wanted uh, experiential worship, what I call full body worship, uh, she wanted even more than what he did. And he tried to put some uh, boundaries on her and she rebuked him uh, prophetically. And then, yeah, the money, all of a sudden the money came out against him, the, the dad. And in that particular case, I've seen this happen in, you know, in, in churches, uh, you're going to have conflict and you're going to have a split. And uh, so his church does have some defections a couple times. I, I will say I really like studying Smale. If you look at him from if you were to take him and put him in a leadership class in a college, people would say he continued to have problems. Uh, he had problems at least in three different three different times in his ministry. So, you know, you can evaluate whether he should have or not, but he did. So he changed one, the, the problems of one church polity to another church polity, right? So it's, you've got a, a system where it's like, oh, there's, there's too much bickering. There's too much, you know, committees trying to decide this. We're just going to, or, or that leader, you know, is going to, he's leading worship. We're, we're just going to let the spirit lead. And then in the midst of that, you're going to have people giving prophetic words by the spirit. That's going to contradict what you're saying by the spirit. So it just creates an entirely different kind of ecclesiological problem, uh, which I thought was what was interesting when reading your book. Um, now, Yeah, you're right. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, he went from congregational problems to having prophetic problems uh, when people didn't agree with him. Yeah, that's exactly now, what happened. Now, you mentioned that this guy is Baptist. I mean, and in, in, in we say Baptist in the sense that Okay, the church polity was Baptist. He was raised from like Baptist roots, but just now you called him Pentecostal as well. And full-bodied worship was something that he wanted to see and experience in his local congregation. Did he see manifestations in his local congregation? Uh, yes, they went. Now, when he was in the First Baptist Church of L.A., there's no evidence that there were manifestations there in 1905. Uh, but when he splits, actually what he does, he basically says he's going to resign and he doesn't know what he's going to do. But within one month, he has formed a new church. And that's that first New Testament church, which is the one that is so close to the Azusa mission. Uh, and they do begin to report uh, manifestations. 
Uh, he initially is excited about speaking in tongues and uh, prophecies and what I would call being slain in the spirit. And um, what I do think in where he ends up having conflict is that he begins to lose control. You know, if you want to say it that way, he he did believe he had a Holy Spirit anointed ministry, but uh, the one person in the church wanted to have more prophecies than he wanted to allow, and they had conflict. And also, I do think this is the time, think of it this way. He had a Spirit anointed ministry, but some of the people that were in his church were leaving and going to Azusa down the street. Mm, a little competition. And, yeah, it has a little competition. I think it's fair to say there's jealousy there. Uh, and plus, he's not he's not experiencing everything he hoped to. And so he begins to say, well, maybe it's not what everybody needs. And so he never gets to the point that he says, he never goes back and returns to being a cessationist. He never says, oh, all this is fake. But he does begin to emphasize even what Rorel said. Well, some of the stuff's of the devil. Uh, we're going too far. Uh, I always, I did put that in the context that he had not experienced it himself. And again, I do think he had lost control some. And whether you like this or not, he did like control. He liked to be in charge. Uh, so who even I will, for all of y'all who don't know Baptists, uh, we really focus on congregational polity. But that doesn't mean you don't have some ministers who don't like to be in control. <laughs> Sure, sure. Yeah, that's uh, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. We like to, I mean, but that, I don't know if that is a marker of Baptist ecclesiology of a marker of human nature in general. Um, let me, let me ask this, because you, you mentioned this over and over about tongues. He didn't uh, experience tongues, but he did experience a, a deeper intimacy with Christ. Uh, it sounds like he desired and believed in a second blessing but not necessarily initial physical evidence. So I, I, if I was going to like put him in a more modern context, which I suppose isn't too much more modern, but I think of Martin Lloyd-Jones who, who would say, hey, let's pray for another baptism of the Spirit. We need the Spirit's power in our ministry, but wouldn't necessarily equate that to tongue speech. Um, yeah. so, so maybe unpack that for me. Is that, is, that a, is that a true assessment of his position that he did believe in second blessing, but not initial physical evidence. And, and there might be some people who are watching right now who don't really know those terms. So maybe unpack those terms for us as well. Yeah, I think you're accurate. So um, let me back up in the holiness movement. There are some people that after conversion thought there should be a second blessing. And that would be uh, an experience of what's called sanctification or purity. There are others that said that, that blessing would come gradually. Um, in Pentecostalism, when it starts, night, well, you know, whatever, I'm going to just give the date of 1906, but uh, in Azusa Street. But when it starts, you have some folks, Josh, that actually want a third blessing. Conversions, the first one, sanctifications, the second one. And then there's going to be a Holy Spirit baptism with a special sign, the Bible sign, Acts 2, speaking in tongues. But uh, other people are going to go, no, there's still a set. There's a two. One's conversion. Your sanctification is going to be gradual all during your life. So it's not a, it's not a second. But your second is going to be Holy Spirit baptism with tongues. Uh, I have found when, when you start giving all those definitions, and I, I just did, but I have found that a lot of people, especially lay people in the pews, uh, the, the, the lines blur. Sometimes they might talk about two experiences. Sometimes they talk about three. I do. I am aware that the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, will talk about three. The Assemblies of God will talk about two. Uh, I am aware of all that. I, so in Smale's case, you are right. He does come out of his, uh, when he leaves this church and forms a new one, and he has been to the Welsh Revival, he really does want a second experience. And what is that going to look like? Well, I do think that as he sees tongues at Azusa down the street, he wants that. But it doesn't happen for him. But what I'm really interested in, after the Azusa Street story where nobody follows him, I, I was able to read a little bit more. He published a, a pamphlet I got a hold of uh, after Azusa Street had started. 
And what you described is what he says. He never lets go of his desire to have a second experience after convert. I call it a post-conversion experience, a second blessing. And he says there it should uh, it should be characterized by one of the gifts of the spirit. Doesn't have to be tongues. And obviously he hasn't spoken in tongues. Um, so I do think that that's accurate for him. In, in terms of your listeners, uh, that's one way to describe that. Other people will simply go, uh, you might have a, a, a second time in your life where you have this deeper relationship with God. Uh, and it doesn't, you don't really focus on uh, really one of the, what you call it, call the extraordinary spiritual gifts of First Corinthians but you would have an, an, a zeal for evangelism. And I will say in Baptist life, if you talk to somebody that says, I'm not charismatic, I'm not Pentecostal, but I'm spirit led, that's, that's, that's somebody saying that I have been immersed in the spirit, baptized in the spirit, and I have a zeal to save souls. That's, the, that's what they're gonna, that's and- how they're gonna do. And praise God. Like, I mean, if, if we have an encounter with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, right? In, in, some, in some tangible way, we have this realization. I, I like reading uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, and he was just saying, you know, the, a lot of the Holiness Pentecostals will say, if you want to get the baptism of the Spirit, what you need to do is you need to sanctify, you know, get yourself holy, you know, you're going to sacrifice, and then you're going to, like, purify yourself of sin, and you're going to have this experience, you know, and he paints the kind of classical Pentecostal way of how to get the baptism of the Spirit. But then he goes, those are all good things. And, you know, if you spend time praying and fasting and, like, getting sin out of your life, and, like, you have an encounter with the Spirit, that's that's a good thing. And and I, I hear people saying, well, you know, when I describe the baptism of the Spirit, that means going to save souls. And it's like, man, if you're just sitting at home talking in tongues, you know, thinking that you're you're changing the world with your, you know, uh, glossolalia, I, I, would, I would make the case that I would prefer a baptism of the Spirit that makes Jesus famous on all the earth. Um, again, that's as a tongue talker myself, I'm not trying to uh, diminish the gift necessarily. You, you mentioned, though, in that list, it's one of the gifts. Would he include teaching? Would he include leadership, mercy in those? Or just the what are often called the uh, overtly miraculous spiritual gifts, what some would call the sign gifts, which is typically a category I reject, but just for the sake of the discussion, would he be looking to tongues, prophecy, healing, something that's more overtly supernatural when saying that the baptism of the Spirit is signed by an evidence? Well, in that context, think about an emerging an, an emerging Pentecostalism. When I, they're going to call it that at the time, but uh, an emerging Pentecostalism where right down the street uh, are these all day and all night revivals that do have these manifestations of what you might call sign gifts or what I, I've called extraordinary gifts in Corinthians. Smale is going to uh, say, yeah, it needs to be one of the uh, gifts in Corinthians, but he's not going to say which one. Um, you know, if you go back into the Holiness Movement, R.A. Torrey, Reuben Torrey said this uh, baptism of the Spirit, the sign would be love. And none of these people would disagree with that, but they still want something tangible. I mean, think of it this way. If you tell somebody, uh, well, even if you're looking in the mirror and you go, I'm Christian, and then you go, well, how do I know I'm Christian? Well, a pretty tacky way for a Baptist to say it is, well, I walked the aisle back in 20 years ago in my life and I got baptized. Uh, I'm not, and I'm not discounting a conversion experience, but, but watch, there's something, tan- there's something tangible. There's something they can hold on to. And so, I would again. I would argue that uh, Baptists, Pentecostals, uh, people, anyone who wants this direct experience of God, it, it's something uh, tangible. So, could it be the gift of teaching? Yes. Would Smale have said that in that environment? I think it would be something a little bit more, uh, what I might call a little bit more First Corinthians ec- ecstatic, uh, a little bit more full body. Yeah, I, we've we've coined a phrase here in Remnant Radio. We just use "ghosty" as a verb. 
So like it wasn't just it's not ghosty enough. It's got to be extra ghosty for snail to consider or smail to consider uh, it to be uh, a sign of this baptism. So let's let's talk about uh, Worrell since we're kind of about halfway through that show already. Um, let's talk about some of his um, contributions to uh, Pentecostalism as a whole. Uh, you mentioned that he you know would write quite a bit. He was involved in quite a bit of publications, various publications. Can you tell us a little about his background in writing? Well, he was uh, a Baptist educator. Uh, it's fascinating to me about how many, I think it shows you that you, uh, how probably unstable those institutions were because he was uh, at a school in Mississippi, uh, one in Ohio, I think one in Kentucky. So he, yeah, he was all over he, the place. He was at a lot of different schools. He was known to be a Greek scholar during that day. Uh, and so he taught Greek. Uh, he was known to be, as I said, an apologist. And so he used his writings to defend a Baptist doctrine. And this is what's interesting to me about him. He was doctrinaire. Christianity equals doctrine. And it ultimately was not enough for him. And he has an experience where he's, he says that he was baptized. When somebody says that Worrell was looking for the baptism of the spirit in 1905 and 06. That's really not correct because he was, he had become a holiness believer and he said the spirit baptized him back around 1890. And there, there were no tongues involved in that. It was this deeper relationship um, with God. When he heard about Azusa, he heard it being described as a deeper relationship to God with, with a gift he had not experienced. So think about that. If if, a, if if receiving a gift from God is a way to have a deeper relationship from God, why would you not want it? That that's that's what crossed his mind. So I would say he is this person who's you could describe for the first two thirds of his career as focusing on Christianity equals doctrine. So I mean, think about that with your listeners. Are, are there five things that you must check off to believe in order to be a Christian? Are there ten? And Worrell's, when you look at his whole life, uh, Worrell's life is going to tell you, well, he could check all those 10 boxes. But at the end of the day, he wanted experience with God, and that's where he went seeking it. And he found it with the holiness movement. But as, the holi as holiness believers began to experience other things at Azusa, he was in search there as well. Uh, he, was, he believed in divine healing. Uh, he focused on that. I mean, you know, back in that day, did you believe in divine healing and go to doctors? Some said yes, some said no. Uh, his obituary describes that he really had a hard time going to a doctor, uh, even at the end of his life, which which I consider kind of sad. But but nevertheless, it's not surprising to me. So uh, I think his contribution to us is the recognition that uh, Christian faith is... Um, belief and experience josh whether you like how he lived it out or not that's yeah that's a, that's another that's a theological that's an entirely judgment. different question you know he he was in search of experience for god and uh he, he realized that he needed more than what he had so you know you mentioned just a second ago he came from more of the holiness side of this conversation and would speak of this second blessing in that holiness vein when we talked uh, about joseph just a moment ago joseph was like power for ministry, manifestation. We'll see one of these gifts in Corinthians manifest. Did did uh, 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 Worrell, did he uh, emphasize like that whole complete sanctification that, that some in the holiness space did? Um, I have read everything that I could find that he wrote, and I think that he's an example of somebody... <laughs> Talks both you, sides of his Mark, mouth. What, I, what I'm getting ready to tell you is he did, um, but I don't think it's it's. If you want somebody to be systematic and clear, I don't think he's always clear because he comes out of a reform background, which in Baptist life would have pushed you away from Wesleyan, uh, well, Wesleyan Christian perfection from uh, John Wesley in England. It would have pushed you away from from an, an experience. So you would have seen sanctification as progressive, but I think he's an example where Wesleyan and reform thought uh, get mixed up together. 
And I, I think he was fine with that. I think it's experience. So to answer your question, did he did he get to the point where he believed that you could have uh, eradication of, of sin? And he did. He, he began. He thought that if you were spirit led, uh, you could you could adopt a Wesleyan view at the same time. He wasn't always consistent about that, Josh. Uh, and I think sometimes we expect everybody to be consistent. When you read his writings, you can he kind of nods in both directions. You know, if I'm going to be entirely honest, I nod in both directions. If you watch episodes of Remnant Radio from four years ago uh, to Remnant Radio today, I've changed my opinions on some things. So if you're just grabbing a couple of sermons, it would make sense why someone might, you know, waffle on an issue such as this, especially as there's just growing popularity in the movement of trying to define these terms and being specific with our terms. You know, when... When if, I look if at cleansing, uh, if holiness is cleansing of the spirit and if divine healing is cleansing of the body, even if you talk about there being progress uh, in sanctification, you still have to emphasize that cleansing now. So I, and I just think that's what he does. He, he begins to emphasize both. And as, as I'm sure you're aware this, Cleansing of the body and cleansing of the spirit, um, what they call the double cure. Love the phrase, double C-U-R-E, double cure. Uh, if you really believe in one, they, you should believe in the other. That's what that's what they advocated, um, which is fascinating to me. I mean, likewise, likewise. Uh, we we talked about his you know view and belief of baptism in the spirit, and really talking about that whole you know sanctification piece. But what about initial physical evidence? I would imagine that people who'd claimed a baptism in the spirit and kind of likened that to an, a whole and utter sanctification would probably be opposed to initial physical evidence, I, I suppose. Maybe, I don't know. What, what was his position on that? Um, well, actually, if you read, uh, if you have some uh, people in your audience that have studied this, William Seymour talked about sanctification and it said it was the sanctified, cleansed soul that would receive the initial evidence. Yeah, very much like that Grudem so quote we, I was talking about earlier. I, but what I, have, what I have found in other people, though, especially if you have people coming out of a reform background who, don't, who were reacting against John Wesley, and then they, be, they all of a sudden, they, they experience tongues. So they're going to go, well, wait a minute. We haven't, the sanctification... It's not a second blessing. It hadn't been complete. It's progressive. But nevertheless, we have been baptized in the Spirit. So I think there are two answers to that. Some people say you have to be, you know, pure, uh, cleansed and before you can. I would call that the Church of God three part, that you have to have you have to be sanctified before you uh, receive the Spirit. Have you ever mm. heard it? I know it's not the part of the book you read. But I have two or three pages on a fascinating group in North Carolina. They're still there called the Pentecostal Free Will Baptist. I don't know if you've Whoa, ever heard of that. Oh, what a name. That's their name. That's actually their official name, Pentecostal Free Will Baptist. That, that isn't a unique name. They're over in North Carolina. Uh, their official doctrine, their creed, says that the person who uh, receives a spirit baptism in tongues is someone who is already sanctified. Okay. And so watch, they that's a Wesleyan group. In other words, they came out of a Wesleyan group. They became Baptist, then they became Pentecostal. So they have three steps. But there are other Baptists who become Pentecostal. And I would say this about a Presbyterian as well, who would say, no, we're not sanctified, but lo and behold, God's given us the spirit and we've spoken in tongues. So I just think there are two answers. Depends on what group you're talking to. No, that, that's helpful. I got some questions in here about early church history, you know, and I've got some thoughts from Didache. I, I want to try to keep our conversation on uh, the subject of Pentecostalism in Azusa Street, guys. So I see your comments in here, and I think they're great comments that we'll try to probably answer at a later date. Maybe I'll add them in here. Josh Jenkins has a question, and, and maybe we'll take a stab at it. Let, let's, let's go for it anyway. He says, you know, what was the historical church's stance on second blessing, and does this have any um, uh, correlation to the stance and introduction to deliverance ministries? Now, in the Didache, there it seems to be uh, a kind of universal approach to say, you should fast before you get water baptized, right? 
Uh, you should set yourself apart, be cleansed, be purify your heart before the Lord. Um, some would even say go as far to like be baptized on on Sunday um, in the early church. As the Didache, uh, for example, will say this is the kind of preparation you need to have. You're going to be immersed with water, and when you kind of come out, they're going to pray that the Holy Spirit would come upon you, right? And there were some kind of deliverance-esque sorts of things that took place there. Now, I think if you do a, if you're a classical Pentecostal reading the Didache, you can say, ah, see, second blessing. But again, if you are reading it in the first century, there aren't the kind of distinctions we have today on second blessing. The, the third wave, first wave distinctions aren't really being made in the first century. Uh, we just have receive the spirit, you know, but it's like, well, the spirit's omnipresent. So what do you mean receive the spirit? You know, the, the spirit drew me to salvation. What do you mean receive the spirit? So it's just, it's kind of like, yes, is the answer because I don't think that the first century really had those terms defined like we're using them today. Dr. Weaver, yeah, you, you have anything you want to add you're to making, that? Your caution's good. Um, let me say this to anybody who's Baptist or Pentecostal. When you start looking for yourself in the first or second century, you get in trouble. Just don't. Uh, you know, when did Baptist start? 1609. When did Pentecostal start? 1906. And, and those are good dates. So don't. Uh, I, that's one caution I would throw. In terms of early Christianity, uh, yeah, the, the Didache, we think it's in the second century. Uh, there was a preparation for baptism. What's if you be, other if you read other uh, catechisms from early Christianity? There, the one that I really enjoy reading and I use in a class talks about. You know, we might talk about the word Lent today, but um, by the fourth century, they had developed uh, forty days where you would have fastings and exorcisms. And, you know, yes, purifying the body and, and you would uh, have a ceremony. I'm sure you've maybe you've heard about this, but on Easter Sunday morning, you would renounce, you mm-hmm. would face the darkness and renounce the, renounce devil. the devil. You turn yeah. around. Yeah, you turn around and, and say you accept the light and you get baptized on Easter. But so is is uh, getting holy and getting baptized? Uh, is it connected to deliverance? Yes. Do you want to take the concept of deliverance ministry from the 19th or 20th century and impose that language back on the first or second century? No. no. Yeah. I mean, so, good. so they had a very, uh, when you entered the church in the second, third, fourth century, you were entering into the uh, army of God to fight the army of Satan. That's the language they used. So you I just use their language, but um and I will say the language of second blessing, Josh, it's best to go back historically and connect that to one of John Wesley's associates named uh, Fletcher, uh, who worked with him in England. So if you want to talk about the beginnings of us, that, that phrase, take it back to the 1700s. But I wouldn't take it. I wouldn't go looking for the language. Uh, but, yeah, it was the Holy Spirit uh some people said that the Holy Spirit, that's when you received it, was at baptism. Others said um, that if you look at Hebrews chapter 6, others said there would be a separate time where you had laying on of hands, and that was it. But that was when the Holy Spirit came. So do you have, do you have, uh, there's actually a kind of, never ever heard of this before, but when Baptists were formed in the 1600s in England, they were actually groups in England that fought over this. And some of them wanted to have baptism and laying on of hands as the symbol of when the Holy Spirit entered your life. And other people didn't want to have laying on of hands at baptism because they said it sounded Catholic. Well, so they argued over it. You had, you had two different kinds of Baptists for a while. So again, these kind of things have been talked about for a long, long time. When does the Spirit come uh, is it come when you're baptized and you're clean? And, and you know, the church have had different answers. So I love the question from the person. Uh, deliverance, sure. Second century, yeah. Call it deliverance ministry like today. I think you probably better head to the 19th century to do that. Yeah, I think I think that's very insightful. And I, I would just say yes and amen. Let, 
back to Worrell, when we're talking about his ministry, you know, we, we talked about his observation of Azusa, uh, again, very much pushing for initial physical evidence, very much pushing towards tongues. In your book, you mentioned that he kind of, I don't want to say rebuked, might be too strong of a word, but really criticized and warned tongue talkers for having a kind of spiritual pride that I thought was actually rather insightful. Could you speak into that? He did, and thank you for picking that up. He uh, basically had an attitude that, I mean, again, he was searching for it. It didn't happen. And what he just, what he said he discovered was that people who were receiving the gift were feeling spiritually superior to everybody else. He said it in colloquial terms. I've got this. You need it. If I have it, why don't you have it? Mm. And he, he did come to the conclusion that they would not receive any instruction from anybody other than a fellow tongue speaker. And yeah, he, he did rebuke that. So he still wanted it, but he also was becoming critical clearly of people who said they were, they were better than him. I'll tell you that I, I've been in services before that I had to walk out of and I almost interrupted. I'll be honest. Like I, I almost was like too far, like just loud enough for the guy to hear. But I was in a service where someone was quoting, um, you know, Hey, there are, you know, this, why are we quoting Spurgeon? Why are we quoting, uh, Whitfield? Why are we quoting Edwards? Why are we quoting these guys who didn't speak in tongues? We're closer to God than they were. And I'm just like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. Like I was so deeply offended. And that was back when I was, way more in the Pentecostal space. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll tell you that that kind of thinking absolutely exists. And, you know, y- you, we can make uh, caricatures of Pentecostals that exist, and we shouldn't make it the normative expression anymore that we can make caricatures of Southern Baptists, and we shouldn't make the normative expression. Uh, but I do think that that rebuke is a a fair one. And I think that, that it does speak to a, a sense of spiritual pride that Paul was actually trying to combat in 1 Corinthians, oddly enough. He was like, hey, you think that you're better than everyone else because you can speak in tongues, but you should seek the greater gifts, was his point. Uh, And it's like church history repeated itself. You know, I I do want to ask, maybe we can get off of uh, uh, Worrell here and talk about some other Baptist theologians. I had uh, Anthony Skoma, who is an Assemblies of God minister uh, in Texas here, uh, but he he spoke of uh, some Southern Baptists who kind of saved the classical Pentecostal, I said Southern Baptists, they were just Baptists, I don't remember if they were Southern or not, saved classical Pentecostalism from modalism uh, because they had theological training, they had the, the theological framework to prevent the Arian, the modalists, I said the Arians, but the modalists from coming in and saying, oh, we don't believe in the Trinity, those kinds of things. Can you speak to that? Well, it would be interesting to see if he was talking to a specific event. Um, I have... One time in my experience, went to a conference where I saw some uh, oneness Pentecostals uh, say that they had read a particular Baptist on uh, the Trinity. And while they did not agree with him, they thought that he could help them communicate better their position uh, to other people. And that, that was a, gosh, Josh, that was probably 25 years ago when that happened. Uh, in terms of, of Baptists saving Pentecostals on the Trinity, I'm not aware that um, I'm not aware of that story. So uh, think Might have of been it a bit of an overstatement, I, huh? I, yeah, I, I would actually think that is. I, th- we can think of it this way: if if Pentecostals have been accused of highlighting the Holy Spirit too much. I think many consuls would say we highlight the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit points us to Christ. You even mentioned that a little while ago because sometimes people need to remind us of that. Some people have told Baptists that they are so uh, Christological, so focused on Jesus, that they don't focus any on the Spirit. Uh, you know, in, in, in fact, I don't know. The, the whole idea of, uh, well, I even read one person that said that Jesus-only Pentecostals uh, could attract Baptists because Baptists talk about Jesus so much. 
I, you know, I, I do talk about Jesus a lot, but, <laughs> Praise I, God. but I, think, I think we can just remember here is that, that the two, that different groups, if, if, and when they talk about the Christian experience, tend to use uh, the language of spirit or the language of Christ more. They can simply learn from each other. That That's just the way I'd say that. I, I don't think one group has saved the other from, uh, from itself. No worries, no worries. Yeah, I, that might uh, be that spirit. That may be that spiritual pride. If, if until I can hear the exact story, I would just say that you know maybe the group you know, need to. It was long enough ago where I can't remember in the same sense that you were saying, hey, that was a decade ago. I, I can't remember an interview from a year and a half ago, the exact story and which minister it was. Tell us about C.H. Mason. I know you mentioned him in your book. We probably only have time for one more story, but tell us a little about C.H. Mason before we wrap things up. Well, I, I think it's somebody people need to, to know about. Uh, he was a Baptist in Mississippi. He gets involved in the holiness movement uh, with a friend of his, uh, Name uh, Charles Jones. Jones uh, Jones does not wants to have some boundaries on how he is spirit led, and and Mason wants to I think experience more. Mason actually hears about Azusa, leaves Mississippi, goes to L.A., and he speaks in tongues. When he returns home, he and and Jones uh, have an argument, and they split. Jones remains. Holiness. In fact, there is a Church of Christ holiness denomination that has Charles Jones as their founder. Huh. But uh, Charles H. Mason or Charles Mason becomes Pentecostal because of Azusa. And we now call him uh, the founder of the Church of God in Christ, which is the largest African-American Pentecostal group in the United States. And I will say he focused a lot on it's he's really fascinating, Josh, because he really did focus a lot on sanctification. Uh, some of his but a lot of his earliest uh, group were black Baptists who had become holiness, who became Pentecostal under his ministry. Uh, you know, the, the center of the Church of God in Christ is in Memphis, Tennessee. That's their headquarters. Uh, and he really does need to be acknowledged as as one of the examples of a Baptist who became a Pentecostal, but he also needs to be acknowledged about the integrated nature of Pentecostalism. He, he's a significant figure that people should know about. Yeah, and, and C.H. Mason, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, it, with the, the Church of God is, predates the Assemblies of God. Is that right? Uh, yes, it does. Uh, Assemblies of God is 1914, uh, so this is earlier than that. Um, if if you really want to get into issues of race and get you know, I don't want to get your readers uh, too excited, but most most scholarship today suggests that um, the earliest origins of the assemblies of God were some white ministers in the South who did not want to participate any longer with C. H. Mason's group. Uh, so, as the assemblies integrated today, of course they are. But in terms of Mm -hmm. One of the things we need to, one of the humble things about studying this is that everybody says, well, early Pentecostalism was integrated. It was, was it, should it be known for that? Yes. But did they begin to segregate quickly? Very much. Yes, they did. Yeah. Very, yeah, yeah. very much. And I, you especially see that uh, in the South, in the Southwest where we live. It, uh, the Southern culture that uh, separated whites and blacks uh, affected Pentecostalism very quickly. Yeah, and that's what I really love about your your work is that you you really do an honest reading. It's not overly critical. It's not overly endorsing. It's just like a, it feels like an honest telling of history. And as someone who was raised in the assemblies, and I still have tons of love and adoration for my experience in the Assemblies of God. I feel like you did a, a, a really great job telling that history. So you guys should pick up uh, uh, Dr. Weaver's book, uh, Baptist and the Holy Spirit. It's a really interesting book. It talks about the, we, we, we kind of hung out in section two, chapter six and seven, where we just kind of talked about some of the Baptist leaders in the movement, those who were, uh, uh, you know, uh, really affected in a positive light. But there's chapters in here on the critical effects of Baptist, Baptist being critical of uh, the, the Pentecostal 
beautiful tradition and lots of really great things in this book. You need to check it out. He does a very thorough job. I don't know of any other book like it. Uh, so I'd really encourage you guys to uh, pick up uh, Dr. Weaver's book. I'll put a link of it in the description of the video so you guys can go pick that up on Amazon. Uh, Dr. Weaver, thank you so much for uh, coming on to the show today. I really appreciate it. Uh, for people who are you know, watching, if you wanted to give them like a closing thought or maybe even a way to reach out to you if you wanted to uh, connect with them, uh, what would be, what would be a, like one thing you would want them thinking about when conceptualizing Pentecostalism and Baptist and, and their kind of working together? Uh, two short things that Baptists and Pentecostals have interacted more than most people think. They've interacted a lot. Uh, and I think that they, the second thing is that, uh, Baptists, Pentecostals, Charismatics, whatever words you want to use are interested in direct experience of God. Or in other words, we are Christians who not only have head, but we have heart and, uh, we focus on experience. And I actually think, uh, can we get excessive? Yeah, but I actually think that's a good thing. Pray get to God. I agree. Thank you, thank you so much for having me on. I hope we can do it again. Uh, I really appreciate your program, Josh, so much. Thank you. Hey, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'd love to uh, spend time going through kind of first, second, third wave with you. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Remnant Radio. Uh, like I said, we are in a bit of a different studio, so no intro clip today, no lower thirds and fancy elements because I'm on Michael's you know, basic computer. Guys, thank you so much uh, for watching the program. If you've been blessed by the ministry and you want to support, there are links in the description. Uh, and uh, help us share this content around uh, because we want to help get this message out there and, and engage people of different uh, churches and denominations, helping them break outside of their theological echo chambers. So guys, thank you so much for tuning into this program. And we'll see you next Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. Blessings. want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek in Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.